Now, please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and while you find that, I'll remind you that uh, we like to work through books of the Bible, if possible, here in this class. just seems to be a healthy thing to, to do, to be chained to the text, to see what God has in store for us. And uh, so here we are. We've worked our way through. I think this is our 34th week in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, and we start in verse 11. And this is God's word. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sin, of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if anybody watched uh, the Republican debates or the Democratic debates or whatever, but uh, I kind of feel like as a, as a Christian pastor, it's part of my responsibility to watch them. So I've, I've, I, we have, I've, I'll occasionally nudge Tammy and wake her up for something, but uh, I, I've watched all the debates. And, um, and uh, so in this last one, the Republican debate, there was a point in the debate where pretty much every guy was going, I'm the only one on the stage who's done blah, blah, blah. And then somebody else, well, I'm the only one on the stage who can say blah, blah, blah. I'm the only one on the stage who uh, signed the blah, 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 the clear water, blah, blah, blah. I'm the only one who balanced the blah, blah, whatever. And you hear that and you're like, okay, whatever, dude. Uh, we kind of take it uh, in stride because uh, we've heard that kind of political goop our whole lives. I love this, I blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, let's talk about the real stuff. And, and we just kind of know that that's political commentary. You think whatever... Um, get to the real stuff. About the time you get to the fourth, I'm the only one up here, you think, well, maybe your skill set isn't as specialized as you're making it out to be, right? All right. Well, consider the gospel, friends. Um, the gospel is good news, but it's not just good news. It's divinely good news. It's full of divine goodness, literally, truly. It's full of divine goodness, divine righteousness. According to this book, ladies and gentlemen, What our maker, God, requires from us is unflinching, wholehearted, perpetual, comprehensive, perfect, uh, happy-spirited obedience. That's what he he requires from us. And uh, I got a question for you. Have you given all that to God every instant of your human existence? Have you? Well, according to this book, that's trouble. Because uh, God, our maker, has uh, say-so over us. Um, and by the way, I would even suggest that a, a person's conscience um, um, verifies that, that God requires our righteousness, and that's the whole purpose of the cross, my friends. What we needed was the righteousness that God requires, okay? That's what we needed to give God. We didn't do it. And so what do we need to be saved? The righteousness God requires. What did he send us? The gift 
of the righteousness that he requires. He sent it to us in Jesus Christ. And so the big idea for this passage is this, I believe, that Christ is the only one who could do the only thing. Uh, what happened on the cross and who accomplished it, it was the only way. Um, and uh, let's explore this a little bit uh, further today. Uh, by the way, before I continue, let me just tell you that this, these, this hunk of verses is, is most often folded by commentators into the former passage. And you just kind of get it out of the way because there seems to be some repetitive stuff here. But uh, as I'll explain, it's necessary things. So let's look at verse, um, uh, chapter, uh, let's look at verse 11. This is our first sermon point, standing and sitting. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now, this is a familiar refrain to you. We, we've, we've looked at this over the past uh, several weeks, and this will sound familiar to you, and it'll sound like kind of a repeat. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, just remember that every word of the Bible is God-breathed. Every single thing in it is important. It's not like how we, how we write letters. You know, you, you write a business letter and, and you go, okay, uh, how do I cut this? That's, that's what you think when you write a business letter or when you, when you write, write a story. You think, how can I cut this? How can I condense it? How can I get rid of the fat? How can I get, get, get rid of repeat sentences or repeat words or whatever? That's how we do things, um, especially in, uh, in our Western uh, mind. That, that irritates us to see redundancy, Right? Well, um, in, in the Bible, you've got everything from Hebrew poetry. And listen, in Hebrew poetry, there are all kinds of things um, like parallelisms and um, words that repeat and um, a chiastic structure where it'll say one thing one way and it'll kind of do a little switchy doodle the other way. And um, there are all kinds of reasons for repetition in, in Hebrew poetry. And also, you look at the way God describes himself. Wait, the way God describes himself, he says, I'm holy, holy, holy. That's repetition on purpose to, to, to a point. Um, even Jesus uh, instructing his disciples, he'll repeat things, or he might say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. Or how about um, the apostle Paul writing similarly to the Ephesians uh, and the Colossians, or to Timothy and, t- and to Titus and so on. And here in our passage, you've got the Hebrew writer, the, the writer of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer of Hebrews, uh, who is building and layering on his point uh, to, to bring us to a theological uh, truth, to try to convey spiritual realities, okay? So that's a long way to go to say, the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, has no unnecessary repetitions, there's no throwaways, there's no somebody's meandering, there's no speaker who just ran long and got away with his thoughts, none of that. It's all God-breathed, it's all in there for a reason. So um, the Holy Spirit applies this to our hearts and uses repetition to do that, and I say all that because verse 11 sounds very familiar. Uh, because we've been in the same basic theme since chapter 7. Chapter 7 through now is a, is a doctrinal part of the book of Hebrews. In fact, we're about to turn, a, this, is the, this chapter, where we are right now, is, is the end of the doctrinal discussion, pretty much, and moves into application. So this, this section is coming to an end, and uh, he's kind of wrapping things up, but it's not just a repetition. Uh, look at verse 12. This will sound familiar to you, too. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
Well, that, that should sound familiar to you too, because that idea of, uh, of once for all has already been offered up in chapter 9, verse 26. Um, Christ appeared once for all to put away sac- uh, sin by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, also in chapter 9, uh, in fact, verse 20, what is it, 4? That was 6. 24, uh, we talked about Christ holding session. You remember that a few weeks ago? We talked about Christ at the right hand of God holding session, how he's dynamically ruling and reigning. That's a theme that we've seen before. Um, also in chapter 9, verse 28, Christ having been offered once, that, that, the point of being offered once, that's, that, we see that again here. Um, and how about this? Uh, in chapter 10, verse 10, uh, just last week we looked at this, and, and by, the will, by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, so yes, verses 11 and 12 sound familiar. They sound a lot like what we've been looking at before, but um, I, can, I can assure you that there's some rich things that are building on here, all right? And one of them shows up right away uh, in verse 11. Uh, look at it. Every priest, this is talking about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, okay? Every priest stands daily at his service. Now, that might seem like nothing, but put yourself in the position of the writer of Hebrews and the first hearers. Okay, they read that and they go, oh, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. Every priest stands. But look at verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. (laughs) So you've got this glorious contrast of a priest who stands serving, stands, in other words, his job's not done. He's standing, he's working, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. I mean, thousands upon thousands and maybe millions of animals, uh, all that blood, this vivid picture that's basically saying, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. You have this priest offering again and again and again, and it's supposed to produce a frustration, I mean, it, it brings people into, into, into fellowship with God, but it's supposed to be, bring a frustration where, where um, an Israelite onlooker would say, when will this ever be finally addressed? When will my conscience be finally cleansed where I know that it's been dealt with and dealt with forever uh, the sins of my life? And you contrast that with, that with verse 12, Christ, he offers a single sacrifice for all times. Single sacrifice for all times. You know what? I, no wonder. I hear Dr. Young through this thing. I wonder what was happening in my head. I, I could hear Dr. Young through these, <laughs> these, these things. It's frightening. Um, you could be preaching. Huh? I, know, <laughs> I, I might be out there. I know. Crazy. Uh, that was wild. But um, wouldn't that be something? Um, all right. But the point is that Christ... He offers one sacrifice and then he sits down. And that the, fa- the fact that he's sitting down at the right hand of the Father means that his saving work is done. When he said it is finished, he really did mean it. Um, and he now rules dynamically. And yet he waits. Continue on, verse 13. He, sits down, he sat down at the right hand of God. The work is done. It accomplished a thing. It's got, uh, it's got ongoing uh, repercussions. And uh, in verse 13, it says he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And so once again, the writer taps into Psalm 110 and applies it directly to Jesus. Um, So what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus' enemies would be made a footstool for his feet? Well, it has to do with judgment, the idea of judgment Um, and uh, final judgment. And and verse 13 says that Christ is waiting for this final judgment. But I want to share something with you that's one of these things... 
You know, when you get a new thought that passes through your brain, it's just exhilarating. And um, I've been reading this guy who quotes a quite old uh, Scottish theologian named P.T. Forsyth. Um, he's a mid-1800s, mid to late 1800s guy. But, but listen to this guy's comments and then the quote that he, he, he offers. He says, future judgment... Okay, so the, what, the, what Christ is waiting for, he's, he's in heaven, he's at the right hand of God, future judgment is coming. Future judgment is only the application of the final judgment that has already taken place at Calvary, all right? Um, Christ accomplished this thing, and in a way, that's the final judgment. Oh, he'll come back. He'll wrap up the details, uh, this, this system of earthly government will come to a close, indeed. And uh, we'll be gathered up and, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth and, and the time will end as we know it now. Okay? But uh, here's, what, here's the quote that Forsyth says. This is awesome. He says, uh, the true judgment seat of Christ where we must all appear is the cross. Um, he says we, we live in a saved world only because we live in a judged world. Christ is not judged merely at some time future coming. He is eternal judge in his great work as the crucified, a work historic yet timeless and final. And he says, he goes on to say, the judgment Christ exercises stands on the judgment he endured. Uh, He was judged by God. He was punished by God. He took our sin debt. It happened. It is finished. And in a real sense, ladies and gentlemen, um, the, the judgment has already occurred. That's what these guys are saying. I found that to be so exhilarating. And what they mean is simply this. You reject the Savior, it's curtains. You reject the Savior now, judgment comes. And in that sense, you're already judged. You, you, you reject this gospel, it's bad for you eternally. Um, and so, in a sense, you've got this Savior sitting at the right hand of God. He's waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. That's the final judgment indeed. But, but be assured, the reason this applies to your life, ladies and gentlemen, is that Christ is already the winner. It's not like Jesus is going, oh, it's so bad down there with the, oh, the ISIS and everything. What am I going to do with the Muslims? And they're, they're all, everybody's all over Europe. And what am I going to do? No one's befuddled in heaven. Christ is victor, ladies and gentlemen. And, and, and the stinger is out of the bee. All the bee can do is buzz. Uh, it's been taken away. You know, that's why, um, I mean, think about what it would have been for people to be with John the Baptist and he sees Jesus on the horizon and he says, behold, the lamb, the one lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. What a message that would be. The priests are standing and repeating and John the Baptist says, hey, 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 this is the one lamb that's gonna take away the sin of the world. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. One lamb. Can you imagine? All right, next point. Uh, Perfection and perfecting. If you look at verse 14, it says, for by a single offering, uh, he has perfected uh, for all time those who are being sanctified. Now you see in the Bible different meanings for the word perfected, all right? Um, Let me give you a good example. Um, In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God's power is imperfect and he was just waiting for you to come on along so it's, it's finally completed? No. 
Um, he's basically saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. In other, in other words, you understand it in weakness. You understand your need and you understand my sufficiency. And in that way, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So that's one <coughs> way that the, use, the Bible uses the word perfect. Um, here's, another, here's another idea. Uh, the idea of completeness. Uh, th- that idea has already been used in... Uh, in Hebrews, um, you don't have to turn, but in chapter 5, it says, uh, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Okay, so he grew up in this earth. He really did live a human life. He learned obedience. And it says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, what does it mean that Jesus became perfect? Wasn't he already perfect? Yes. But what this is saying here is that as he grew up, as he lived the human life, the real human life that you and I have lived, that he becomes eligible, he withstands, he withholds from temptation. He doesn't give in, he lives a, a perfect life in cooperation, submission to, in the power of the Holy Ghost. And uh, in that way, he has become eligible. So in, in this use, the Bible would talk about uh, Jesus being made perfect like being viable, being valid, being eligible, uh, being equipped, being appropriate, uh, and so on. But in our case today, this idea of of being made perfect uh, for a single offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Has to do with actual perfection. Has to do with the way God looks at you and thinks about you as a believer. Um, Let me ask you a question. When it says um, in verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Does that sound like something that's already happened or something that's going to happen? Huh? Done. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time. That's something that's been done. And at the same time, what else? You read the rest of the sentence. Those who are being sanctified. What is that? It, that's a process. All right? So in, in a sense, um, we're perfected. So that God looks at us and he says, ah, I don't see the sin anymore. I see the righteousness of the son of God who I sent. I punished the sin by punishing the savior. But now I see the righteousness of my own son in you, perfected for eternity. At the same time, God's in this work of sanctifying us in this life where he's dealing with us and he's making us love holy things. He's making us move toward uh, him and toward his word and he grows us up. So we're perfected in a sense, and at the same time, he's making us perfect. And ultimately, we will be. Um, what, we, what we will be, we don't know, but we know we'll be like him, and that's perfect. Isn't that awesome? And so it's this dual work, uh, perfection and perfecting. Um, so um, let's, read, let's, let, let's continue on. It, it's, it's the idea too, ladies and gentlemen. You, you've heard me say this a bunch of times. I talk about the, um, the tension between the already and the not yet. You've heard me say that a zillion times if you've known me at all, that there's a tension between the already and the not yet. And what that basically means is Christ has come, right? Christ will come again. Christ has come. He's inaugurated his kingdom. He's not consummated his kingdom. He is king, but things are not set as they finally will be. And we live within the tension of the already and the not yet. That's a classic reformed understanding of, of, uh, of where we live. And by the way, it'll formulate your, um, your view of end times. 
um, how things are going to wrap up. There are four or five basic biblical views of what's going to happen at the end. Well, I believe we live within the tension of the already and the not yet. When Christ comes back for a second time, that's it. He doesn't need to come back a third and a fourth or fifth time. He comes back. He's inaugurated its kingdom. He'll consummate it. All right. So you've heard me say that a bunch of times. It's usually thought of eschatologically, end time-ish, and so on. But, ladies and gentlemen, he's king. He's king now. Uh, in a strong sense, this can be applied to our personal satisf- uh, sanctification. In verse 16, it says, uh, this is a quote from um, Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declared the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. What is God saying? What, what, is, what is that talking about? It's talking about, ladies and gentlemen, a sanctified life. God puts his laws on our hearts, he writes them on our minds, and that's us living within the tension of the already and the not yet in this world that's not our home as we wait for the consummation of our king. Is that an awesome thought? So in a sense, we live within the already and the not yet, but that tension, we wait for Christ to return, Um, he's come, he'll come again. But at the same time, There's the sanctifying work that is going on. Um, He has put his law on our hearts and he has written them on our mind. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, the goal of being made perfect in God's courtroom is that we are ultimately made perfect in our practice. That's God's goal. So we're made perfect in his courtroom. It's true. Justification happened. The gavel fell. Boom. Not guilty. Perfect. But at the same time, God's goal is is that he would grow us up into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Um, One commentator wonderfully wrote this. He said, this is our identity, our destiny, our reality. It is the spiritual gravity of every Christian's life that God would cause us to be holy and make us more rightly resemble his son. Um, You know, in Man Cake, which is here, I should have said that in my announcements. Man Cake is this Wednesday at 6.30 a.m., Come to this room. It could be 20 guys. It could be 50 guys, but uh, you never know. But come to this room, 6.30 a.m., uh, $5 breakfast. You're out by 7.24, guaranteed. We've never missed a start or a stop time ever in four years. So uh, come on to that. But anyway, we're, we're, we're doing this book, The, the Hole in Our Holiness. And uh, Kevin DeYoung is a wonderful writer. And, um, and uh, he talks about a distinctive holiness that 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 Christians should have. And he quotes J.I. Packer who says, in reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we are justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. Distinctive holiness is uh, the, the reason God saved us. Many reasons. He loved us um, for his own glory. It's true. But in all that, ladies and gentlemen, there's a distinctive holiness that is to be a hallmark of... Um, of being a Christian. Hey, uh, I got a quick uh, illustration, a timely one, and then we'll move on to our last point here. Um, there was a funeral here last week, Bill Tilson. And uh, what a loved guy and what a giant family. And uh, it's, it was very personal to me because I, I sort of did an impression of him a little bit. And um, I always found him to be such a charming person. And I've made music with like, I don't know, seven or eight or nine people in his family. I mean, it's just an amazing amount of people uh, that are, he's the patriarch and I, I, I'm intermingled with all these people and I just, it was very personal to me. And, um, you know, one of the things I prayed um, with some people and, 
I just, I, I thank God that he was enjoying the presence of God and the fullest expression of his own self. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, that that's, a, that's something that's very easy to pull out of the scriptures? And I, not, not by pointing at proof texts, but by, but by saying, I, I, what is God's goal? God's goal for us, ladies and gentlemen, he, he perfects us in his courtroom. He, he perfects us as he grows us up. And when we leave this earth and go to be with him, nothing but that which is holy can be in his presence. It says, thou in the presence of the holy ones, you are more greatly to be feared. Only holy ones can be around God. Only holy ones. Or he must judge them and jettison them. Only holy ones. And so when you leave this earth and you have loved, believing loved ones who have gone before you, know that they are enjoying the fullest expression of themselves. No more are they affected with sin. No more. They are holy. They are the holy ones. And their personality is intact. Their, hum- their, 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 their nature is intact. They're just without sin. And, and that, that shouldn't be a shocking thing uh, for Christians to hear. By the way, let me give you another little doodad about heaven. Um, and I, I've said this a bazillion times, and every time I do, some people go, what? But guys, it doesn't, you don't have to be a genius. Heaven is a place of memories. Do you know that? That you're just going to swallow it up in a cloud and it's a big bubble blast for all eternity. Who are you? I don't know. Who am I? I don't know. Whoa, we're in robes. Is that what you think heaven is? Heaven is a place of memories. You know why? Because it's a place of gratitude. You don't have to be a genius to figure that out. We're going to be praising God for what? If we forgot, what would we praise him for? It's a place of memories, ladies and gentlemen. And if you have loved ones who have gone before you, they are the holy ones. And they are enjoying the fullest expression of their real selves. They haven't disappeared. Their their mind, their personality hasn't disappeared. They've become sanctified ultimately. All right, last thing. Forgetting and remembering. Speaking of which... um, Look at verse 17 and 18. Let's read that in a group here. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, friends, um, I've heard this preached by several people over the course of my life, and it's usually a lay person, to be honest, to be fair. It's usually a lay person. And they get all excited about this passage, and they get up and they go, oh, God doesn't remember your sin. He can't. He can't, he can't even, he can't even call it up. He can't, he can't remember your sin. Have you ever heard that preached in your life? He can't. He can't do it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's idiotic. I mean, you have to throw out the rest of the Bible. He made the earth. I think he knows everything that's going on. He's omnipotent, he's got all the power. He's omniscience, he's got all the knowledge. He's everywhere present. He knows all the stuff. When the Bible says that God will remember their sins no more, it doesn't mean that he got knocked on the head and it, boop, I forgot that one part, isn't that amazing? Uh, suddenly I'm not sovereign in this one little sliver. That's ridiculous. Of course he remembers what you did. You will too. But guess what? Ingratitude. Praising God for his grace. Oh, yeah, he remembers. <coughs> but the idea is he does not remember it in that he doesn't hold it to your account anymore. That's the great joy. You've been forgiven, 
but he does not hold it to your account. Your secret sins, your misdeeds dark, oh, he sees them. They're not yours. He punished them on his son. Jesus knows what he died for. Uh, No secret to him. But God remembers them no more, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let me close with this. Why do we call sin a debt? That's a common thing in the church, isn't it? We call sin a debt. We call it the sin debt. And we sing, we sing a song, a debtor to mercy alone. We're debtors. Why are we debtors? Well, being a debtor is not hard to understand. If uh, you uh, own a home, you're a debtor to the bank. And if you buy a car and you finance it, you're a debtor to whoever financed your car. Um, if you have parents, uh, you're a debtor forever. And uh, it's only... That you're, it's only periods of your life when you're a complete moron that you don't know that. You know, you know, all my stupid parents, blah, blah, blah. No, you're debtors forever, okay? Debtors forever. Um, so we understand what being in debt is and, and you, that you can owe somebody money. You can owe somebody time. You can owe somebody a phone call. You can owe somebody respect. Um, so doesn't it, doesn't it stand a reason that if there is a being who is greater than you, who created you, that you would owe that creator, owe that being who gave you everything, perfect obedience. Does that make sense? I mean, if, if there really is a creator who designed you and said, okay, this is how you're supposed to function uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, uh, this is how I've designed you to work, then you owe that creator perfect obedience. That's exactly what's meant by a sin debt. If we haven't given God the perfect obedience that we owe him, we are debtors. And if he rescued us by his mercy, then we are debtors to mercy alone. What do we owe God? We owe him perfect obedience. Um, And that's the gospel message, ladies and gentlemen. Um, The good news is God has intervened. And uh, Christ is the only one who could do the only thing. The only thing that could have happened that would rescue anyone is that God would be offered the righteousness that he's due. We couldn't do it. Endless sacrifices of priests couldn't do it. But the Savior who came lived a human life, lived it perfectly, submission in the power of the Holy Spirit, that one who laid his life down, that one who gave his righteousness to us because our sin was put upon him, that's the one who can rescue. Um, it's, it's the Christ, uh, and he was the only one who could do that only thing. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that you have set your love upon us, that it's an everlasting love, that you knew us before the foundations of the earth, and you set your redeeming, saving love upon us, and it's a great mystery um, that grace is, is, is puzzling but wonderful, and uh, we praise you and thank you for loving us enough to send a Savior and giving us exactly what we needed, the right one who could do the only thing, and uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.